Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. People would read these Wild West comics and then they would reenact it. You know, they'd get into an argument and they'd do 10 paces, turn and fire. The whole thing was insane. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast, an episode 46 with George Monbiot. George first spoke to us in the early days of the podcast when we sat down and recorded episode 9, Poisoned Arrows, about his time as a clandestine journalist in West Papua. Without wanting to give too much away, this conversation goes much like the first. Uh, I ask a single question and George tells an incredible, important and heart-wrenching story about his time in Brazil. Um, If you're enjoying the podcast, please do take some time to introduce us to your friends and leave us a review on iTunes. Enjoy the latest episode with George Monbiot. The last time we spoke, we talked about um, Iri and Jaya and all of those adventures. And um, at the very end of the podcast, you said um, that you'd enjoyed talking. And next time we should talk about the time you were presumed dead in Brazil. So I was kind of hoping you'd just tell me that story. Right. Okay. After I returned from West Papua and wrote my first book, um, Poisoned Arrows, I realized that there was a whole world really to... um, investigate um, loads of crucial stories which weren't being properly told, which weren't being properly investigated by journalists, and that um, that's what I wanted to do. So I went back to my publishers, the book had done fairly well, and I said, "Um, I want you now to give me an advance to go to the Amazon to find out what's really happening there, because there'd been so many conflicting accounts of what the major causes of destruction and the displacement of indigenous people and of of, of rural labourers and others had been. And I felt that no one was really cutting to the heart of it. So I set myself up in the city of Manaus in the middle of the Amazon, where I lived for a couple of years, learned Portuguese, began to learn the ropes of how Brazil worked, read everything I could possibly read, read all the papers every day, read massive stack of books and academic papers just to try to get myself as much as possible up to speed. And um, connected with a whole load of human rights and environmental groups. And I, it became pretty clear to me that a huge part of the story was people being thrown off their land elsewhere and really having no choice but then to move into the Amazon. There's this whole story about these rapacious peasants who are moving in and cutting down the forest. And actually, most of the people moving in from what I was reading were desperate people, were people who really had no choice but to move because basically they'd lost everything at home. So I um, put my feelers out um, to various human rights groups and said, look, if, if this stuff is kicking off, I want to be there. And very soon, one of these groups said, there's something going on. Um, it's exactly the sort of stuff that you want to investigate. Um, it's happening on a big scale, and it's in the centre of the state of Maranhão in the um, in the northeast of Brazil, which is actually to the... Um, southeast of the Amazon and um, 
And um, they said there's this little town of Bacabal and around there there's these horrendous land seizures taking place. Whole villages are being burnt to the ground, people being thrown off, and they're all just migrating up to the Amazon. Um, so I took the overnight bus, travelled for two days, and eventually walked to this little village in, um, uh, in the middle of the boondocks in the state of Marignan. And as instructed, went to the friary uh, because really the last line of defence for the local people there was the Catholic Church. And the friars there were part of the liberation theology movement, which uh, was inspired um, originally by Brazilians. It really developed in Brazil as a resistance to the military dictatorship. And um, the liberation theologists saw themselves as defending people's lives on earth as well as their lives in heaven. They saw themselves as having a mission to the poor and thought that this was actually what priests ought to be doing, was defending the poor from rich and powerful people. Um, and uh, I'd, seen, I'd met similar people actually in West Papua, um, a couple of unbelievably brave missionaries who were putting themselves between the Indonesian soldiers and the indigenous people and um, had uh, several times very nearly been killed in trying to protect the indigenous people. There were some really terrible missionaries in West Papua, but there were also these amazingly brave and, um, and humanitarian missionaries who just saw themselves as being there to defend um, people from oppression. And, and this very similar thing was happening here in the state of Marignan. Um, and so the human rights group has said, right, go, go and knock on the door of the friary and they'll show you where you need to go, what you need to investigate. So um, I went up to this great big door with studs in and a huge great iron knocker and I banged on the door and before long it opened and this um, man in a, in a long black cassock standing there and said whatever you come to do just do it now I said sorry what and he said I know you come to kill me so let's just get it over and done with <laughs> I said uh, uh wait a minute I'll just take a look at the docket um kill the priest no no <laughs> not today <laughs> I think that's I think that's another one <laughs> and, and and I said no, look, look I'm, I'm a I'm a British journalist I've um come to investigate what's happening here with the with, with the land seizures and he says oh all right then we'll, we'll come in in that case and so I came in and I said uh, hang on a moment I said really you thought I'd come to kill you he said yeah yeah we received a threat this morning that um a, a gunman was going to come round and kill me I said so so why did you open the door and he said because it's in God's hands <laughs> either this guy is start raving mad or he's the bravest person I've ever met and actually he was the bravest person I'd ever met amazing bloke called Frey Adolfo who um, had just devoted his entire life to trying to protect people against these monstrous things that were going on so this was a few years after the military dictatorship had ended but basically to all intents and purposes, in places like that, it was still going on because you had the the state governors, all the other state politicians, or most of them, um, the federal police, the military police, the 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 civil police. Um, you had um, the courts, and all supporting the big landowners and the business people who were grabbing land from the peasants. So it was just a a. a uh, everything was stacked against the peasants. It was completely on on the side of the big guys and there was just no effective ways. Democracy was a dead letter. There was no effective way of preventing people from just grabbing land and killing anyone who stood in the way. Um, so uh, I, when I went into the courtyard of the friary, uh, there were all these people sitting there um, in under the um, eaves of the courtyard, um, talking very quietly, rubbing their wrists, so in what I soon realised was this state of profound shock, 
because the night before their village had been burnt down and they had these rope burns around their wrists and their ankles where they'd been tied up and then some of them had been dragged along the ground and they had all these sort of um, uh, scratches, grazes all down their stomachs and backs where they'd been dragged on the ground. Uh, there was one young lad who had these massive bruises all down his back where he'd been beaten with a rifle butt. Uh, there were people with huge contusions on their faces and stuff. And they'd just been beaten up, a village had been burnt down so that this um, landowner could grab all their land and add it to his estate. And of course for these peasants who were subsistence cultivators, that was everything to them. It was It was their entire livelihood, it was their culture, it was their community. You know, it's not just the land you lose, you lose everything. And and, and the, the people there, it was as if they had been knocked out of one world and into another, just like that, overnight. And these uh, were people with indigenous blood. Um, they Their ancestors went back thousands of years in that part of Brazil. Um, and um, while, you know, they didn't... Um, uh, uh, maintain traditional indigenous lives, um, they saw themselves rightly as the um, original inhabitants of that area who uh, had you know, roots going back all that way and this connection to the land which had just then been brutally severed. But thanks to working alongside the Catholic Church there, and their amazing spirit, really, their strength and determination, they weren't giving up. And so they said to me, come back to the village with us because we, we're going to try to move back in. And so um, I uh, went back with them and um, it was, it was um, a, a, almost a day's walk. Um, and we, 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 we got into to this village where half the houses had been burnt down. Um, there, there were some left standing. And, um, and there were these thugs wandering around with, um, with, with guns. Um, and they turned out to be police-issue guns, these short-barreled shotguns um, uh, with, with um, chambers with multiple cartridges in and pistols and machetes and they were just wandering around in this village uh, the people call them pistoleros gunmen and um and they said you 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 know be careful of those people anyway the people just moved into the remaining homes uh because they they weren't going to be dislodged and this was despite the fact that one person had been killed they had all been beaten up several people had been tortured they 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 for them, the land was everything. You lose the land, you lose everything. It later turned out, interestingly, that um, uh, there were uh, a cluster of villages in this area, um, and some had stayed to fight, and others had just fled when when they were first attacked. And um, and and it seemed there was an almost consistent pattern between those two that people have fled from villages which had television aerials and stayed in villages which didn't. I mean, this is how the priests explained it. And I say, what? Sorry, <laughs> I don't understand. They said, well, they said, the villages without television aerials, everyone sits around the fire at night, every night, and they talk. And, and they all pull together. And they see, basically, that, you know, the, the life of one is the life of all. And, and you can't be separated. But the village with the television aerials, they'll sit around the TV watching propaganda, basically, because that's what Brazilian TV was and to some extent still is. There was this network called Global, Hegi Global, which was founded by this exceedingly rich man who supported the military dictatorship. And, and it was just wall-to-wall -wall propaganda beamed into their homes, but not just sort of political propaganda, commercial propaganda too. You can aspire to live like this. Look, look at these um, telenovelas, these soap operas where all these people are living in luxury. Um, you can have a car like this. You can have a home like this. And, and people's minds were no longer rooted in their community. They, they were, began to sort of drift away into this dream world of how things can be if I break away from my community and go off and pursue my fortune. 
you know, and this was a large reason why a lot of people left for the cities where instead of their fortune they would encounter total misery. Nothing, no economic life except for theft, prostitution, begging, whatever, and just horrendous living conditions. And um, and and it was in the places with the TV that social solidarity had completely collapsed. So I um, spent um, uh, uh, a week or two in this village just talking to people, uh, finding out what had happened, piecing the story together. And it was an extraordinary experience because I, I found that though almost everyone in the village was illiterate, um, the the level of political education was greater than I'd come across in any other society on earth, including at Oxford University where I was. People had this depth of understanding informed by their own experience, but also by academic literature. And, and I'd be sort of lying in my hammock in, in this, because everyone was crowded into a small number of houses. And so with other men, we'd just be in a row of hammocks and I'd be lying there. And this guy would be talking about Gramsci and explaining cultural hegemony. And I was like, uh, it, I was learning, you know, learning masses. And I was just thinking, where the hell is this coming from? This is this extraordinary. And, and what was happening there alongside the liberation theology was this barefoot education movement um, of which Paolo Freire is the most famous exponent who wrote this book called The Pedagogy of the, the, Pedagogy of the Oppressed where the teacher becomes a learner, the learner becomes a teacher, and you sort of educate each other. You know, teachers, barefoot teachers, go into peasant villages, go into slums in the cities, learn from the people about their story and their situation, bring in their academic experience, and they basically cross-fertilise. And, and this was... I was seeing the results of this. It was mind-blowing. I mean, I felt... I could just feel my political education beginning right there. You know, that seeing that combination of people's lived experience and their ability to place that in the context of what had happened historically, of, of the forces around the world, economic power, political power. This is how it works. This is the result of it. And, and I was just like, my God, I'm, uh, what was I then? 26 years old. And I thought... My education has just begun. I just started to understand the world and I was learning it from people who could not read a single sentence. It was quite amazing. And, and what people did was to use the oral tradition, which had been passed along for thousands of years, where people developed these extraordinary memories for stories and songs and fables and encoded knowledge within them, and had written a lot of their stories into hymns and poems and prayers because they were quite religious and and they used those forms to embed what was going on in their lives into bible stories and and into the, the wider story of the world it was quite amazing and it was a brilliantly effective means of transmitting that understanding that knowledge so i i I spent all this time recording what people were saying. I had my tape recorder with me because I was making radio programs as well as um, uh, uh, researching for the book, all my notebooks. And then, um, and, and there was one tape in particular which had some very sensitive information on it because it was sort of these specific details of what particular politicians were up to their necks in this land theft. And... And, and I realised that until I got out of the village um, and was able to lodge this stuff elsewhere, this was dangerous, compromising stuff for the people who were on tape. So I, I kept that down, taped to the inside of my trousers. <laughs> and, um, and then um, while I was there, basically, there was a measure of protection for the people because you know, there's a British journalist floating about. You can't just wade in there mob-handed when this stuff's going to be witnessed. But finally, the authorities lost their patience and they sent the pistoleros in, the gunmen in. And, um, and, and it happened to be the time, I mean, it was probably triggered by this, I went to try to interview 
the rancher who was who was throwing the peasants off, the, the guy who was trying to grab all their land. And um, and basically it was uh, immediately after that that these guys um, grabbed me, these heavily armed men, um, and tried to get all my stuff off me. Um, they tried um, to empty my camera, my tape recorder, to take everything I could. And then they could, they, they were, uh, the, the couple of guys pinned me, one of them frisked me. He felt this thing, which I had taped to the inside of my trousers, and they tried to grab it. And and so um, there was a bit of a fight ensued. It's the only time I've ever um, hit anyone in anger. Um, I managed to elbow this guy in his windpipe and knock him over and then hit another bloke quite hard. But eventually I was overpowered and they, they grabbed this tape. And so, and I thought, you know, this is really serious shit for the people on the tape. So I said, right, if you touch any of my property, if you listen to any of this property, you are breaking this law, that law, and the other law. I just made up a whole lot of stuff. And I said, and I have authority from the highest level of state to be here. So if, if you don't give me that, that material, you are in serious shit. And if you tamper with it or listen to it or anything, then everything's going to come down on, on top of you. And, um, and, and so then um, this policeman comes swaggering out in uniform this time but you know and 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 he says right well you get permission from the head of police i'll give you back your stuff and it was just like sort of oh right so yeah so the police and the gunman you're all one and the same bloody hell you know it's like it's just just right there so i said all right i will i will so so and i said you don't tamper you don't touch anything like that so um so I go to the state capital, San Luis, and after um, really browbeating the, the, the head of police there, um, Colonel Javier, um, uh, and threatening him with all sorts of things that I had absolutely no right to threaten him with, he, he wrote me out this letter uh, and signed it saying that um, I had full permission to be operating and no one was allowed to interfere with me. Um, and... Um, so I thought, right, okay. So then I go back to to the village, uh, borrow a donkey, get back to the village, and um, and I go um, uh, um, uh, after you know spending a few days again with people, um, just working out what the lie of the land is. Um, I go to where the police are staying, which is on the ranch. So there's this whole contingent of military police staying on the ranch with their shotguns and everything. Um, this uh, 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 there's a um, a peasant who had a bashed up old jeep who took me there because it was quite a long way and um and i went flourishing this letter and so you've got to give me back all my my tapes and films and, and everything and um and this this captain of police say he just laughed at me and he said so what's this letter then i said here it is it's signed by Colonel Javier himself, and I hand it over. And this guy looks at it, and he just starts laughing and laughing. And I say, so what is it? He said, do you know my name? I said, no. I said, I'm Captain Javier. This man is my father. <laughs> so, it's like, so at this point, it was shit. <laughs> and so he said, um, he said, right, Gringo, you've got three seconds to get out of here. And they raise their guns, these, these pump-action shotguns, and I just start running. And the guy in the Jeep sees this, starts the engine and starts going off down the track. I mean, he wasn't trying to get away from me, but it was just like, you know, you jump in now or I'm going to abandon you. So I just run, I sprint down the road and leap in, and we go tearing off down this um, uh, down the track and away. And... and by this time, I was in touch with some human rights lawyers who I'd met through the friars, through, through the, the priests. And, um, and they said to me, you've got to leave tonight. You've just got to leave Marignan tonight, get, get, out, get the night bus out. Otherwise, they'll come after you and they will kill you. And so they realised that I had no other protection, that um, I, wasn't, um, I, I didn't have any of that um, back, back up and credibility which I'd claimed to have. And they said... You know, they're just going to come after you and kill you. You, know, you, 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 you are just trouble as far as they're concerned. And you know, they have no hesitation. They had killed the, the bishop as well as several priests. 
you know, they, they the, the local bishop had been murdered by, by, by um, if not those exact people, by um, um, a police and gunmen attached to the big landowners. So, you know, you, you're dead if you stay here. So I, I took the night bus out, um, travelled back to Manaus a couple of days, um, and then um, spent the night in, in my place when I got there. And then um, the next day, I went back to the human rights organisation, which had set me on to the story in, in the first place, um, to debrief. And I went into um, the office of, of the guy um, who, I'd, who I'd been working with, and he was on the phone, and he, and he said, just hang on a moment. And, and so I sat down, and, and he was talking on the phone, and he, and he said, oh, right, oh, oh, that's terrible. Oh, no, that's awful. Oh, actually, there's someone just come in who might be able to help you with this. So he passes the phone over, and it was Jan Rosher from The Guardian. Now, at this stage, I didn't have any connection with The Guardian. This was years before I started working with them. And Jan Rosher was the fantastic Brazilian correspondent there. And she said, oh, yeah, I hear you just come back from Maranhão. And I said, yeah, I have. She said, oh, I'm, I'm chasing up this story which has been in the newspapers. I said, oh, what's that then? About this journalist who, who, who got killed there. And I said, um, oh, no, that's terrible. A journalist got killed. What was he doing? Well, he was this British journalist. He was, he was investigating land disputes. I said, oh, my God, I didn't realise there was another one. God, that's awful. What happened to him? Oh, he was found garroted behind a police station. And I said, oh, no, that's, that's just, oh, God, I said, that, you know, that could have been me. It's so, you know, that's what they're like there. It's so easy. It, it just, it, they just kill with impunity. And I said, I said, whereabouts was this guy working? Oh, um, uh, close to Bacabal. I said, that's amazing. I was there too. I had no idea there was another British journalist there. I would have, I would have joined forces if I'd known. Oh, Christ, I said, it just goes to show. I feel so lucky now. Um, I said, what was the guy's name? She said, um, George uh, Mon, Mon, uh, Monbio, Monbiot. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Ah, I said, um, I hate to disappoint you, but I think your story might not check out. <laughs> so, so what had happened was this local paper had picked up this thing, this story from someone that had actually been killed by the police, added some gory details. It then got picked up by the national papers. And I'd been completely unaware of all this. So uh, that close to having my death reported in The Guardian, which uh, it's, it's kind of a sh- I would have, I, that would be in a frame of my wall if it had happened. But um, so, so anyway, then um, um, I, I, you know, I'd seen um, plenty to show me what was going on, you know, that vast numbers of people, I mean, most people were not... Um, were not resisting because basically they get killed. And as it happened, the um, uh, the village that I'd been working in eventually won its land dispute because of those fake reports in the newspapers. Didn't seem to matter how many peasants were murdered, but one British journalist doesn't actually get murdered, but his death is is falsely reported. And suddenly, oh, this is too much. We can't, um, this has gone too far. We'll have to clamp down on this and, um, and and tell them to back off. And, you know, again, it just sort of shows the way in which some people are privileged and some people just, their lives count for nothing, nothing at all. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Anyway, so having um, uh, had a pretty good view of uh, what was driving people out of their homes, because the great majority of people weren't able to resist and they were fleeing obviously because you know otherwise you just get killed um 
I decided to follow the people who were leaving their homes into the Amazon. And it turned out that very large numbers of people were moving from the state of Marignan, where I've been working, into Horaima, in the very north of the Amazon, 2,000 miles away, into the territory of the Yanomami people to look for gold. Uh, and there was this massive explosion of freelance gold digging, garimperos, um, not working for any big corporation, but working in small groups in garimpos, little gold mines, so the people who worked them were called garimperos, um, in the remotest forests in the Amazon. Uh, these were places where there'd been no European contact at all until the 1970s. No Europeans had been there at all until that point. And the Yanomami had already suffered devastating impacts of, of European disease brought in quite recently, but by and large had been left alone because um, they didn't have mahogany in their land. And mahogany at the time was a great driver of exploitation, um, which was really being used to open up new frontiers in the Amazon where the logging companies would build roads to go in, extract this incredibly valuable wood as it was then because mahogany was very much in fashion in the US and in Britain, nowhere else in the world, but just really in those two countries, fetched an enormous price. And so then um, um, smallholders would move up those roads, then the ranchers would move up those roads and take over the land. So it would really be the mahogany loggers who would open everything up. And the Yanomami had been blessed until that point by not having mahogany growing in their land. But unfortunately for them, there was gold. And and there'd been some major finds of gold in the alluvial gravel, um, the gravel brought down from the hills by the rivers, uh, which had triggered this massive gold rush. And you think of these gold rushes as being um, uh, driven by greed and fever, gold fever and excitement. And to some extent they were, but they were also driven by total desperation. That it, When I got there, it turned out that 80% of the gold miners had come from Marignan, um, the state 2,000 miles away, which I'd, I'd been working in, and that uh, they had basically been driven there by losing their livelihoods. They'd either lost their land directly or things had been made so difficult for them by this hor horrendous, oppressive situation that they really just had no choice but to leave. And where do you go if you want to make a want to make a living? Well, you go and look for gold on this frontier where you know, there are all these great promises, all these look at these people who have made themselves tremendously rich. Um, the great majority of people came back far poorer than they they were when they set off but but the promise was there, and the desperation was there driving people and I, I wasn't supposed to go. Um, the, uh, the, the the police had um, officially closed the mines. Um, there weren't supposed to be any miners going in, though no one was stopping them. And there certainly weren't supposed to be any journalists or observers going in because they would see that no one was stopping the miners. But um, I hooked up with a, a Canadian woman who was part of my circle of friends in Manaus, who was also desperate to find out what was going on up there. And she was this phenomenally wily, clever, um, cunning person called Barbara, who, um, uh, who just had a way of getting around the system. She had lived in Brazil for quite a few years and, and, and you know, every country has, has ways of getting around the system. You know, there, there's, there's just ways around. And, and in Brazil, you know, when, once you knew the ropes, it was easier than in many other places, you know, which is part of the reason why things go so badly wrong there, because the loggers can get around the system, the miners can get around the system, the, the ranchers can. But if, if you know how to play it, you can as, as well. And, in this, um, uh, and this was very helpful as an investigative journalist, and particularly with Barbara, who was so good at it. And she would sort of chat people up and she would just get them to look the other way at a strategic moment. And so we, we turned up at this um, little airport, Boavista, in, um, in Roraima, which was the only real city in the whole state. Um, and that was a little one-horse town, really. And, um, and Barbara just got to work. 
And I don't know what she did, how she did it, because you know, we were told in no uncertain terms, you cannot go to the mines. It's just impossible. It can't be done. And like half an hour after that, she comes running over and says, right, grab your rucksack now, go. And we just run across this airstrip and jump onto this bashed up old DC-10, this this real pile of junk. I mean, it looked like it would be stuck together with baked bean cans. You know, it probably was. And um, and and in there, there's just a whole load of of miners with their sacks, and um, and us. And I said, "How how did you do that? How did you get us on this flight?" She said, "I can't tell you." So um, so, so so off we go. And we set off, and this thing is like one engine is going poof, 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 the whole time. And it cries. This is you know this is this is probably as dangerous as anything else I've done. Just getting in this plane, and and and. So after 40, 50 minutes um, of just flying across pretty well unbroken rainforest, we come down um, b- uh, below the clouds and above the trees and start circling this dirt airstrip. There's a strip of clay carved out through the forest and all around it were these upside down planes with their, like, their tails sticking out of the trees. <laughs> And it's like, uh, hang on a moment, guys. And this, look, 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 wait a minute. This hasn't worked. This hasn't worked before. Let's not do this. But and then it was too late. I was shitting bricks. Absolutely terrified. And this thing comes down sort of at an angle, sort of with one engine just going, and um, and um, we hit the dirt and luckily sort of skid to a halt before we end up in the forest at the other end. And so get out pretty shaken and. Um, and and then there we are. We're in the middle of the gold mines, and all around are these sort of rivers which have just been ripped up. It's like the veins of the forest have been ripped out. Um, and you know these are sort of the centre of the ecosystem, and they've they've just been torn up with all these high pressure hoses. You know, there's pumps running all around us, and these guys spraying these hoses at banks of gravel around the river, which are collapsing, and then. You, you you sift the gravel and sort of, and and gradually sort of try and sift out the gold. Then if you find gold, um, you mix it with mercury to get all pick up all the little gold grains because it dissolves in mercury, and then you burn the mercury off, pr- producing this horrendous heavy metal pollution. Great plumes of it around around the whole area, which later turned up in the blood of the indigenous people and all the rest. It's just, the whole thing is devastating. And you've basically got 40,000 absolutely desperate, slightly crazed people with guns, uh, many of them are guns, um, looking for gold. And it's just like, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> and during six months there, uh, 1,700 of those people have been shot dead. Uh, because basically, you know, if you found gold and you let anyone else know that you'd found gold, you just had a, a target on on your back from that point on. But it wasn't just that. It was that the the whole system there was completely insane. People would read these Wild West comics um, uh, and, and then they would reenact it. And of course, this stuff never actually happened in the Wild West. You know, the comics were fantasy. But it was like, oh, this is how we ought to do it. So, you know, they get into an argument and they do 10 paces, turn and fire on the airstrips and they would just shoot each other just like that it was it was the whole thing was insane you know there there were people being buried in the rainforest every night um after being shot in various disputes some of which were just crazy so the the garimpos the little gold mines or the teams of miners, each team was a garimpo, the, the miners themselves were the garimperos. They were strung around these airstrips and the, the, the owner of the airstrip, the Dono de Pista, was the person who basically controlled the area and taxed everybody else. So each garimpo would have a boss. There were one or two cooperative ones, but most of them were run by a particular person who employed a team of four or five people and then that person had to pay tax on any gold he found to the Dono de Pista, who, who gave permission to, to fly in and fly out in, in return for that tax. And some of these people were just straight up psychopaths, the people who owned the air, airstrips. That's how they got to own the airstrip. 
And and one of the airstrips I, I visited, um, I was told you, you can't come here unless you go and talk to Zé Luis first, who was the donor de pista. He was the he was the airstrip boss. And this guy, he 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 looked like a sort of classic spaghetti western villain. He he had this he had this scar which went right the way from one ear across his face, over his nose and to the other ear. He, he, he wore this torn-off um, uh, denim waistcoat, denim jacket with the arms torn off, and he had two pistols and a machete hanging from his belt, and, and he carried an automatic rifle around with him. And everywhere he went, he had this bunch of henchmen walking with him. And he, um, he boasted openly of ha having killed at least five people, but then I lost count. And and he um, had gained the airport, uh, the airstrip, by killing his business partner, murdering his business partner, and and so um, um, uh, and so I had to go and report to him, and he said, right, yeah, you can stay here, Gringo, but you've got to stay in my house. If you're going to stay here, you stay here. Hang your hammock up here. So there's this back room in, in the house with various hang hammocks hanging up. Hang, hang it there. You report into me. You go through me. You stay with me. Otherwise, you can't stay here. So I thought, well, it's interesting. <laughs> so I'll, I'll try it. So anyway, um, the the first day I was um, sitting on on his veranda because they all had, uh, these sort of Donald's de Pista had made these sort of. Uh, I mean, they were just made out of chainsawed planks, but by comparison to the shanties where everyone else was living, were basically just were. Uh, pieces of tarpaulin strung up with the hammocks underneath. You know, they were quite grand. They were actual houses, and um, and I was sitting on on the veranda on this first day, and I see the other side of the airstrip. This this bloke come out of the forest, barefooted guy with a rifle, um, and he just stops. He's like he's like a wild animal in that he's totally alert there's this sense you immediately pick up this sense about this guy that he is completely tuned in and he's just watching and looking like an animal like a deer or something um and just watching and watching and waiting in this sense of complete alertness and then he takes a couple of paces out onto the airstrip and he's looking all around looking all around then he turns around and and he gestures um, towards the forest that he's just come out of and these two people step out these two weird looking blokes they've got these wide floppy hats and they move in a really strange way they're very skinny and odd looking I'd been in the gold mines for a couple of weeks by then and uh, staying on various airstrips and I was just like couldn't get my head around what, what are these people what's going on and this guy very cautiously wanders across the airstrip, um, cradling his gun, looking all around. And then he uh, steps up onto the veranda and gestures them and they, they follow him. And I'm just watching, I'm just staring there, uh, staring at these two people. And then um, they step up towards the veranda and the first one takes off their hat. And it's a woman. And I realise... I hadn't seen a woman for two weeks, apart from Barbara. And so it was just like, oh, right, that sort of bloke. <laughs> you know, it was just it was so it was just so out of place that I sort of it hadn't occurred to me that these could be women. And and she was this she was stunning, this really beautiful woman, and just just standing there. And and so um and and, and I'm just completely Polacks by the sight of a woman in the gold mines and then and she just sort of tosses her head and walks past me and and her friend the other woman walked past me as well and they just disappear into Zay Luis's house and I'm just staring but into the house where they've gone and then I turn to this guy and, and I notice him properly for the first time and there was something quite remarkable about him he just had this extraordinary presence this aura and um and and these uh, this very beautiful face, this very sort of grave, beautiful face with these sort of Egyptian eyes. You know, he was a, a, a black guy with just uh, something very special about this bloke. And I said to him, "Who are those people?" And he goes, 
puta. Sex workers, in other words. And I said, oh, right. I said, and who are you? And he says, oh, I'm their security. And so I said, oh, right. So, um, yeah, and, and you know, to begin with, he wouldn't talk much, but then he began telling me his story. And, and this guy had had walked, he'd left Marignan at the age of 14 and had just walked across the Amazon. And he spent two years walking with nothing but a rifle, just living off the land. And then had worked in various places in the Amazon and and then had um, you know taken all these jobs and and then had become a security guard to to these to these two sex workers who were moving through through the gold mines and um and i said uh, so uh, you know what what how, how is it here what how are you finding it by comparison to to anywhere else and he said senor i have only killed three men in my life but if i stay here another month i will kill another three <laughs> like, right okay must have that clear so so we were sitting there on the veranda for a bit and and then suddenly the door behind us burst open and there's the first of the two women all dolled up this beautiful dress all made up and her hair up and earrings and stuff and i'm just open-mouthed you know because i've been so long away and it was just like ah, oh, ah. Oh. And and she looks at Zhuang, who is this sort of you know super cool, amazingly tough guy. And she just says, "Well, little boy, what are you waiting for? You get, going to take us to the bar or what?" And Zhuang goes, "Oh, right, okay, okay." You know? And so so he goes off with these two women, and then and the second of them, as as she was walking past, she said, "Well, well, come on, Gringo, are you coming or what?" So she sort of grabs me by the wrist, and I go to the bar with them. And I hadn't been in this bar. It was owned by Zé Luis, like everything else around there. And as soon as you walk in, it's just like, ooh, this doesn't feel too good. This doesn't feel good at all. There was, there was this ghetto blaster on, on the... this. It was all sort of carved out of these sort of chainsawed wood, you know, and this ghetto blaster sitting on the um, bar turned up so high that it was over-peaking and sort of bouncing around on the bar. And there were all these blokes sitting at little tables with their bottles of cachaça, the white rum they, they drank, and, and, and on, on the table, and their guns on the tables. And they were just drumming their fingers between the bottle and the gun. You know, they all had pistols out. And, um, and it was just everyone looking at each other in this air of horrendous tension. And, um, and I'm, I'm sort of sit down and just watch and then um and, and then one of the women says to me come on come on gringo we're going to dance and so, <laughs> so and I, was like, I don't want to dance i just i just want to watch and he, no 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 we're going to dance so so i try to dance and i just like i'm really nervous you know i just think this just doesn't feel right and you can see juan the, the 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 security guy just his eyes are on everyone at once just darting all around this tiny room and just watching what everybody's doing and then the door of the bar flies open and there's there's Zé Luis with with his henchmen all completely tooled up and they swagger in and and everybody's got their eyes on them you know just just watching these these guys and they swagger up to the bar and Zeluish slams his hand down on the bar and, and says, you know, says Kachasa and, and they sort of bring out some bottles. And he's just staring around, grinning. He's got about three teeth and he's just sort of grinning around and he just looks so mean and, and his henchman looks so mean. And Juan is just sort of like totally, his eyes are completely pinned on him. And... Um, and then um, Zé Luis uh, uh, takes hold of one of the women and starts dancing with her. And um, the, the, his pistoleros, his gunmen, sort of move out through uh, around the bar. And there's this inc inc incredibly powerful air of tension. It's just like, this, this just doesn't look good. And it uh, so carries on for 30, 40 minutes. And then suddenly, Schwamm, grabs me by the other arm and says, out. And he grabs the two women and says, out, now. And I couldn't see that anything had changed. And he just picked something up. And he almost bodily throws us out through the door. And we go tumbling out through the door. And the moment I'm like falling through space out of the door, 
the whole place erupts in gunfire. It's just... <laughs> and I just start running down the airstrip. And as I'm running down the airstrip, there's someone lying in these bushes beside the airstrip who starts shooting at me as I'm running down the airstrip. And I'm like, what the fuck have I done? And they're just like running and running. And I just run all the way back to Zay Luisha's house, which of course, you know, it's, it's like, where would you not want to stay? And, and I run through the house and, and dive into my hammock at the back of the house. And it's lying in my hammock like it's going to offer me some protection. Go, shit, shit, shit. And suddenly, right in my ear, uh, was this voice who says, anyone dead? And I go, oh, jeez. Oh, yeah, I hadn't noticed there was a bloke lying in the hammock right next to mine. And it was this lovely bloke I'd met before called Ananias, a carpenter who'd built the Zay Luisha's house and various uh, other, uh, the bar and everything. And and so I said, oh, Jesus, just all, oh, God, they're all shooting each other in the bar. And then I was running down the airstrip and someone else tried to shoot me. And he said, oh, don't you worry about him. He, sh he, he shoots at everyone, but he's too drunk. He never hits anybody. So, oh, well, that's all right then. Good. <laughs> I'm glad you told me. And, um, and and he said, these idiots, they think they're in the baggy baggies, meaning the Westerns. You know, and, and, um, and then he just turns over and goes back to sleep. <laughs> So, uh, and the next day, this bloke was laid out outside the bar with, with a hole the size of an apple in his chest and just, just being shot at point blank range um, by someone, I don't know who. So, um, yeah, so I spent um, a couple of years um, doing a whole lot of stuff like that, just, just finding out who was going where, what was going on, who was in charge. Um, who was making stuff happen, who was trying to stop them, who was getting killed when they got in the way. And um, it was, yeah, as I say, it was the beginning of my education. And then um, I, I went home, I wrote my book. Seven years later, I went back to find out what had been going on since. And I decided to go back to the place in Marignan where um, the, uh, the landowner had been trying to steal the peasant's land. And um, I um, uh, found that the village was still there, that they had survived, that um, well, many others had been torn down. Um, they'd, um, uh, they, they, they'd been... Uh, let, let me start this again, because I should have introduced the fact that I was doing it for a radio programme, so I'll just start this section again, yeah. And seven years later, I went back to make a BBC programme with the imaginative title of Going Back, uh, where they sort of got people to go back to formative experiences and, and see how things have changed since then. So I decided to go back to the place in Marignan um, where um, the, the land theft had been taking place and to see what had happened since. And... Um, and the first thing I noticed, I went to the friary first with the producer I was working with and knocked on the door just as before. Um, uh, uh, and the very same person, Frey Adolfo, opened the door. And this was the person who had opened the door to me originally thinking I'd come to kill him. But instead of speaking, he just put his finger to his lips and waved his hand in the air. He, he gestured me in, but he didn't say anything. And and I thought, this is just totally weird. And um, and the other priests were the same. They they weren't speaking to me. And and eventually, I I cornered Frey Adolfo and I said, I don't understand. Why aren't you talking to me? He said, I'm not allowed to talk to you. And I said, I, I said, why why aren't you allowed to talk to me? He said, he said, I I can talk to you like you know, uh, like, would you like something to eat? Would you like something to drink? I can't talk to you about anything else. And what I found was that the, the Pope, John Paul II, had shut down liberation theology in Brazil and imposed a silence on its advocates. And that if anyone pursued that um, um, form of the faith, uh, they would be excommunicated and they would in their belief system, go to hell, which was the only thing that people like Frey Adolfo were afraid of. And he'd completely shut down this, the last line of defence 
for indigenous people, for um, laborers, for uh, for the working poor, um, and with devastating consequences. And these U.S.-backed evangelical churches, particularly Pentecostals, had moved in and filled the gap which had been left because people had given up on the Catholic Church if it wasn't going to protect them anymore. And they were doing all these 24-hour prayer-a-thons and things in, 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 in the cities and basically saying to people, don't worry about your situation in this life because it'll all be sorted out in heaven. And which was incredibly convenient for the big landowners and the big bosses. And it was on the back of those Pentecostal movements that Jair Bolsonaro later came to power. So you could actually see that political change taking place when when um, um, John Paul II shut that movement down. He set in train the course of events that led to this fascist basically becoming president of, of Brazil with the dire consequences that we've been seeing recently. Um, and and so suddenly, you know, the priests weren't there for people anymore. They weren't allowed to be. But I still, I went back to the village and um, and found that, yeah, the, that village had survived while so many others around had been devastated, had been ripped down and the land had been stolen. Um, and I actually went to meet the rancher who had failed to to steal the land um, and he wasn't very pleased to see me. He, he recognised me, he knew exactly who I was um, and he issued various threats but he didn't at that time have the police with him and so he wasn't able to follow up on those threats which was just as well. And um, And then I thought I want to go and meet the policeman who was at the centre of all the killing and torturing basically who had been enforcing for the landowner and whose police station I'd been to the first time I went um, uh, uh, where he'd um, uh, I'd, I'd w gone to try to interview this policeman and he hadn't been um, at all cooperative uh, but um, I'd, uh, I, so, so I thought right I want to go and talk to this guy and and find out what he's been doing the last seven years so I went to the police station and I said, um, I want to talk to Vidal da Costa. And they said, uh, you can't talk to him. He's gone. I said, well, where's he gone? Oh, we don't know. Can't tell you. He's gone. He's retired. He's gone. Um, you, you, and we're not going to tell you where he's gone. And and I said, well, can I have a look around the police station? Um, um, you know, just I wanted to see it, basically, because I hadn't been allowed in properly before. And for some reason, this this guy let me in. He said, "All right, have, have a look. There's nothing. We've we got nothing to hide." And and so I sort of looking around the cells and stuff, and um, and and as I was looking around, this 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 cleaner, a, a woman with with a brush, comes up to me and says, "I hear you're looking for Vidal da Costa," and I said, "Yes, I am," and she said, "I know, I, I know where he is." Well, I don't know where he is, but I've got his number and I know which city he's in, but I don't know what his, his address. And I said, how come? He said, because one of my children is his child and he's not paying and he's just cut me off and I want to find out where he is. But all I've got is his, is his phone number. So if you can find out where he is, you'll be doing me a big favour. So she gives me the phone number and... And then I go back to the hotel with the producer. We just spend hours going through the phone book looking for this number because it wasn't under his name. It was it was it was under his lover's name or wife's name or someone, but it wasn't his name wasn't in the book. And we just go down all the numbers in the phone book for San Luis de Marignan, the the, the, the capital city of Marignan, and eventually we find the number and it's got the address next to it. And so we, we go straight to San Luis and, um, and, and the next afternoon um, take a taxi to, to this address, which is in quite a posh part of the town. I mean, not super posh, but, you know, fairly nice detached houses. And, um, and I, I just walk up and knock on the door and, um, and there's no answer. Uh, and then um, I so so I knock again, 
and um, and I go and stand on the other side of the street to see if I can see anything. And there's some people sitting on on the street there on the pavement, and they say um, and they say, "What are you doing?" I say, oh, "I'm trying to um, uh, find um, um, uh, trying to find trying to find Vidal da Costa." And they say, "Oh, he's in there. He's in there. He's just not answering the door." So I go back across the street and I say, Vidal da Costa, I know you're in there. I want to talk to you about the, the murder and torture of, of, of people in Lago de Pedra um, seven years ago. Will you come out like a man and talk to me about this? And, um, and, and there, was, um, um, uh, there was no reply. And so, so I started listing some of the charges against him, some of the things that he had done. Um, the people who died in his police cells, the, the forms of torture which had been going on and all the rest of it. And and after a while, I saw this big bulky figure. He was a great big bloke um, behind this Phoenician blind and the slats of the blind just open a tiny bit and then they shut again. So I, I said, I can see you. I know you're in there. Just come out and talk to me. And um, And... And suddenly the door flies open and there he is with a gun, inevitably. And, and he says, I know who you are. He said, I'm, I, and you stay here one second longer, I'm going to shoot you. And, and he raises the gun and levels it. And at that point, we just leg it round the corner and go, 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 go running off. All of this recorded. And it was used um, by the BBC as part of their health and safety training course for 10 years after that. Thanks for listening. For more information, visit theadventurepodcast.co.uk. The podcast is produced in association with Sidetrack magazine. And for that extra adventure fix, head over to sidetrack.com. The podcast is hosted by Matt Pycroft and produced and distributed by Pip Saunders and Alex Hall. And if you can find two minutes to leave us a review on iTunes, they make the world of difference.